for the moment and read with us Romans chapter 6. We sang as our opening hymn the words out from the darkness we have been translated into the kingdom of God's own dear Son. And this passage, Romans 6, deals particularly with the dominion of sin. These believers were already saved people, but they were now entering into the next phase of their experience, the problem of sin dominating their lives, even though against their will. And one of the means used by God is connected with that word reckon. Likewise, reckon. Reckon what God has reckoned. He has reckoned that you died with Christ. Well, it may be difficult for you to understand, but you stand there. He reckoned that you were buried with him. Well, that's the end of you, isn't it? Well, then you risen with him. And we're going to see that again in Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2, which is before us. And we shall also come into touch with a dominion, the one who wields this power over the lives and bodies of men today. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Now, last week, when we were considering this passage, we naturally commenced with verse 19. That is where the section begins. A stress upon the mighty power which was wrought in Christ when he was raised from the dead, and when he ascended up far above all principality and power, and when he had all things put under his feet, and when he was made head over all things to the church. All that's included. This mighty power accomplished that. And then it wasn't written to tell us just that, but it was, it was written in order that we should see that that mighty power was behind our faith. We believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now that is written, and that is what God has said. But I doubt whether any of us in this meeting have had that full experience. But you see, the faith we have is in that one who quickeneth the dead. That's the characteristic, you remember? When Abraham is spoken of in Romans 4, he doesn't say he believed in Jehovah or he believed in El Shaddai, but he believed, believed in God that quickeneth the dead. Well, so do we. Well, if it's practical, there's practically nothing impossible if we're in the line of will of God. But of course, we're not going out of our way to make discoveries by just being venturesome. But it would be grand, wouldn't it, sometimes, to be able to lean back and realise that here is an invincible power at our disposal. I drew attention, I won't go over the grounds again last week, but one of the expressions which are used here, to work in and to work out, suggesting a power may be laid on, but it may not be switched on. And you know, sometimes we ourselves have got into a panic because something wasn't working and then somebody else has come along and just put the switch on. Well, that's what Christ is. The power is there. But sometimes we're not always in contact. Well now this evening, I want you to notice if you will, that this section is distributed under two mighty energies. The first we've looked at, that word energy is translated to in work, to work in in verse 19. 
Now we have the same word in verse 2. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in, energizing. So you see, this is in direct contrast. It's on purpose. We no, no sooner face the energy which conquered death that our thoughts are turned to an energy which is working mightily still. Now, an evil one. One of the things we do well ever to keep in our mind as we are studying the scriptures, or as we're thinking about the problems of the nations, or as we're thinking about our own individual problems, is that there's a war on. An unrelenting war that's never ceased since man was on the earth, and that's before. And will not cease until all enemies are under his feet. And God once more is all in all. So that you see, there may be many things which would be legitimate for us and right for us to enjoy if there wasn't a war on. But for the moment, we have to forego many of these things. But we're waiting for pleasures forevermore. We're waiting for that which neither corrupts nor spoils. And we're on the side of truth. But before we go into this question of the mighty power that works, there's something waiting for us in the first verse which is of vital importance. Our version reads, And you, Atiquitan, who were dead in trespasses and sins. The words Atiquitan are borrowed from verse 5. They're anticipated, and we can leave them there. That's quite legitimate. Now this verse is often quoted whenever the question of the universality of sin and its dreadful character is the subject. The wages of sin is death. And we read of others who are dead while they live. And here we have a statement, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. But I think you'll agree with me that we do not serve the cause of truth by distorting one truth in order to support another. All the scripture can stand on its own ground. And there are enough passages in scripture to prove what sin is without robbing the child of God of a very precious truth. And that, that I believe, has happened in the translation before us. First of all, this reads, you were in the past dead in trespasses and sin, so that's quite easy. We all agree with that, because now we're delivered and we're saved. But supposing you knew that the apostle didn't say you were. Supposing you knew that he was using the present participle, and that is translated being. He's speaking about what you are now at this present moment. Believers, members of the body of Christ, blessed with all spiritual blessings, redeemed, and knowing it, he says, being, you are now, whatever this is, dead in trespasses and sins. Well, you say, that's hopeless because it's so contradictory. And yet, are we going to turn the word of God to our own ideas and measures and say, well, God said being, but we don't like that, so we'll put we were once in the past. Oh, we mustn't do that, must we? Then the next thing is, there's no word for in. Dead in trespasses and sins. All the way through this epistle you can read 
in heavenly places, in Christ, and there's the preposition E-N, in. But there's no preposition here. No word in. Would you say, how did they come to put it? Oh, there was a reason. When a verb is in the dative case, you have to follow it either by in, or by, or to, or at. Now, perhaps some of you are puzzled about the dative case. It's so many years ago since you swatted up grammar, and you're glad to have forgotten it. Well, now let me just give you just a word, because I'm like that, I hate it, rather. The word dative is the word to give, but the word don't, donate, to give. And the giving word very often omits the word to. If I were to say, give me the book, well, you don't give me. Strictly speaking, I ought to say, if I'm very, very precise, give to me the book, but we cut the word to out. And you know, Shakespeare makes a tremendous play with that. He says, knock me the door. Oh, knock, see, knock me. Oh, doesn't need that. Knock at the door. At, to, you see, in, by. So that there was no word in, it's got to be translated in harmony with the teaching. The next thing is this. There is a principle, which I think we'd all agree is true and must be adhered to. I'll quote from the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is a principle that governs all translation and all interpretation, or should do. Verse 13, 1 Corinthians 2.13 Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Ghost teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So now we've got the words which the Holy Ghost has used, and we shall arrive at their teaching and understanding if we'll compare what he has said out of places and get them all in harmony. So that the whole lot will speak without contradicting any one passage. Now for that, you'll have to take it from me for the time being that I'm acting faithfully, that the passage to which I refer will be on all fours with this one in Ephesians 2. And of course, I don't mean to say that you would doubt me if afterwards you got down to the Greek New Testament or anything that would help you and discovered it for yourself, because that's what the Bereans did. They searched to see if it was so. But we cannot go into that this evening because it would be practically impossible. So now would you turn back to that passage we read, Romans the sixth chapter. And would you permit me to take a little liberty with it and translate the verses as the authorised version has translated the identical grammatical construction <coughs> in these passages. Romans 6 Verse 2, our version reads, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now would you tolerate this? God forbid, how shall we that are dead in sin live any longer therein? Well, the poor wretch couldn't help himself if he was dead in sin, could he? And the teaching of Romans 6 isn't that you're dead in sin, but the problem is <coughs> met by the fact that you're dead to sin and alive unto God. So you see, they translated the dative case there, as it should be, dead to sin. In verse 10, we have another one. <coughs> For in that he died, he died unto sin 
Once. Oh, I hesitate to put this in. Would anyone? No, nobody would dare say that in that he died, he died in sin once. This is our Saviour. He died to it. Or look at verse 11. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's hopeless to, to try to say, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed in sin. Because if that's our natural condition, we have no need to reckon it. And we're not dealing with our natural condition, we're dealing with a supernatural one. We've been quickened and raised, delivered and set free from this awful dominion. So you see, we've got impact into that one chapter, three different places, where it could not possibly be translated except dead too. I'll give you one more in this uh, Romans 7, verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. Well, that's, that's right, dead to the law. But not dead in the law, wouldn't have so much sense. You, you die to the law, and this figure here is the law of marriage. But if the husband is living, and the woman leaves the husband and marries another, she's called an adulteress. But if a husband be dead, she's free from that law, and can marry another. So, dead to the law, the law dead to you. And one more, because this is identical with the passage before us, 1 Peter chapter 2, 24. Speaking of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live <coughs> unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. Dead to sins. Our version in or our passage, uh, in Ephesians, reads, dead to trespasses and sins. But it amounts to the same thing from the, for the moment. So, as far as I'm concerned, I have to keep this verse in harmony with that general translation elsewhere. And this verse turns out to be not a statement of what we once were, but a most glorious statement of what we are now. We are now present, dead, to trespasses and sins. We are quickened and alive and already anticipating glory. So don't think you've been robbed of anything because one text, which is so often quoted, turns out to be one that belongs to another group. We want the truth of God and we don't want me to use it as a bolster or a buttress for teaching that we've already accepted. Now, I do know that some friends are a little bit diffident about taking such a drastic alteration from a person like myself in a meeting like this. And so I'm going to refer you, if it's of anything to you, to the marginal notes in Newbury's Bible. Now you know, of course, Newbury is in great, uh, held in great respect by certain companies of God's people. And I do remember once when they were calling me a terrific lot of names for the translation I'd offered. Somebody in that very meeting said, I believe Mr. So-and-so has got a new Bible. Yes, 
Will you read what Newbury put in the margin? And Newbury have put in the margin what they were slating me for. What they felt like, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But I, I've just mentioned that to show you that it was not merely a private interpretation of my own. Newbury, who goes out of his way to give you the tenses and the various things in the margin to guide you, has endorsed that. So here we are now. We are now in this blessed position of being reckoned by God to have died too, just as it seems. And there was a need for it, friends, for he's going to now take you back into the past and tell you what you once were. Oh, now he goes back into the past right enough, but not in verse 1. Now, will you first of all look at this chapter 2 as a whole? Just for a moment. I always feel that I, I understand the passage the better when I know its context and its surroundings, and so do you. Now, first of all, we have, in verse 2, the words, in time past. And in verse 3, in times past. And that is followed by the blessed words, verse 4, but God. Now, you can look down the chapter a little bit to verse 11 and 12. That at that time, in time past, you were Gentiles. In verse 12, at that time, you were without Christ. Then verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus. You see? Once, you were like that, but God. Once, you were like that, but now. Now, what does it say after the words, but God? Why you were quickened, raised, seated, and have a glorious prospect in the ages to come. And what does it say after but now in verse 13? While the middle wall's gone, peace has been established, you're reconciled, and no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So that first of all, in the first part of the chapter, he stresses the question of sin. And in the second part of the chapter, he stresses the question of distance. Let's get this right. Let's pick out the words that deal with sin in verses 2 and 3. We've got them in verse 1, trespasses, sins. We've got a walk according to this world. We've got children of disobedience. We've got the lusts of our flesh, the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. <coughs> now when we turn to 11 and 12, we haven't got a single reference to sin, but just the fact that we were without Christ, we were aliens, we were strangers, we had no hope. And in verse 13, it doesn't say anything about our sins, it says, we who were far off are made nigh. So the first position is, the position of a poor sinful person. And the second position is, yes, and on top of that, you had all the dispensational disability of being a Gentile. Now, you're not responsible for being a Gentile, but you are responsible for many of the acts you've done. To be a Gentile put you com completely out of court. There were no covenants, no promises for you. And then on top of that, there was a mighty energy, a mighty spiritual power that was using your likes and dislikes you didn't know it and making you a pawn in the game in this great conflict of the ages. Oh, what a need there is for the other power 
the superintending grace of God that rescued us and then keeps us. I don't think we ought to underestimate the foe and the enemy that is here brought before us. You will notice in this epistle that when Christ was raised from the dead, he was raised far above all principality and power. And then later on, these principalities and powers fall into two groups. One group in chapter 3 are a friendly group of principalities and powers, for they are learning by the church the manifold wisdom of God. And the other are antagonistic principalities and powers, for you have to put on the armour of God when you're dealing with them, and they're the world rulers of this darkness. And in the epistle to the Colossians, the two groups are there. In Colossians 2, Christ is said to be the head over principality and power. Yet presently, you read that he stripped off principality and power and made a show of them at the cross. Now you come to think of it. There are principalities and powers that are at the disposal of the prince of the power of the air. And we don't, we haven't seen him. We can only guess his tactics. What are we to try to, in any measure, deliver ourselves or one another from such an authority and power? Isn't it good then? Isn't it good to be able to read that words in the, in Colossians that formed a part of our opening hymn? That he not only redeemed us, but he has delivered us from the authority of darkness and translated us. Translated us. And it says about the man who was translated, in the Old Testament, that his friends looked for him and couldn't find it. Well, I'm glad of that, aren't you? Because if we're translated, this evil one will look for us and not find us. And the only way we can be tripped up by him, friends, is for us to negligently, or voluntarily, or unwittingly, step out of our glorious position in Christ, and get tangled up with the things to do with this world, and all its ways. As long as we remain, where Christ has placed us, as long as we reckon ourselves to be dead in sin, to be dead to sin, but alive unto God, and above principality and power in him, we're beyond his touch. It's only because we will venture out, or we will not believe that danger is so great, as God has said, that we come sometimes to rather a bad end. But blessed be God, it's not an end in the final sense. For he will never let us go, but we may suffer a little bit in consequence. Well now let us look again a little bit closer at these verses. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says in verse 2, we once walked. In time past he walked. I'm saying once because sometimes they translate it once and sometimes they translate it in time past. It's all the same. And then, when it picks up again in verse 3, it says, we had our conversation in time past. So you see, that's very much like the rest of Scripture. The conversation doesn't really mean what you talk, but it includes how you walk. It's something more than speaking. It's your manner of life. So you're asked that in your conversation, you may remember that you belong to Christ. And of course it's wise for us to remember that in the words we use. But it's, it's a lot more than merely speaking. It's the whole course of our conduct. 
So we have walk and conversation. And then we have a pattern. We walked according to the course of this world. Now the word course, strangely enough, is the word which is translated forever, or a word which is translated world, and a word which is translated age. What do you say, what are you going to do with this? You can't say walked according to the, they can't put forever in there. You couldn't put walk according to the world of this world. Isn't it a pity that there's a word that should consistently be translated by the word age, as it is many times. They tell you that, the, that, that they use this word age as a word that means eternity. The very word age is translated forever. And then in the very same context, it tells you that it's going to end, the end of the age. So you get something which will never end and something which will end. So again, we ask you to remember that this is the age of this world. Now the word age doesn't necessarily mean only a length of time. It means a character that belongs to that time. And you and I were born into this world and we have been trained and taught and disciplined and pushed and we hardly understand all the movements that go about us. It all constitutes the age of this world. And we're doing many things and we're saying many things simply because we are in this world and in this time. Well, he says, yes, that's true enough. But those who walk entirely in harmony with the age of this world, they're in an evil age and they're walking contrary to the mind and will of God. That's the pattern. And then the power that we're seeing to it that we went along that path is said to be the prince of the power of the air. This word power, particularly this word power, would be better translated authority. There's a little difference, isn't there? To have authority is one thing. To have power may be just another. And this is the word which we're going to read later on in Revelation chapter 13, when the times are running out and the great anti-Christian dictator is on the scene. It says that to that one who is called the beast in that prophetic passage, that Satan will give him his authority. Fancy. What a world that will be to live in when the dictator ruling over this world will receive the authority of the prince and the authority of the heir, the spirit that now in worketh in the children of disobedience. And that's the first little group. We have the pattern and the power and then those who are thus working are said to be sons or children of disobedience. And then it goes back on itself. Among whom also we all had our conversation. He says, don't, don't think that any of us will exempt whether we are Jew, whether we are Gentile, whether we were coarse or whether we were refined, whether we were intelligent, whether we were barbarian, Syrian, bond, free, we were all in it, in it completely. We all had our conversation in time past and we were fulfilling the lusts of our flesh. Now here's the point. We are told that we were being energised by an invisible, mighty spirit power. Yet in the next breath it says we were doing what we wanted to do. 
We were fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. And we were fulfilling the desires, or as the margin puts it, the wills of the flesh and of the mind. Well, if you're fulfilling your own desires, you are not conscious that anybody else is using you, are you? Now, there's a bright side to that as well. You say, well, if you're going to get something bright out of that, you're a super optimist. Well, I think we can. Because in the earlier chapter, there's another energy at work. And some of you may have said to yourself, well, I must be a poor lot. Because I couldn't honestly say that day by day I'm conscious that there is the mighty power that was worked in Christ that's working in me. No, you're doing what you think's right, aren't you? You're fulfilling the desires of the new mind. You're seeking to walk worthy of what the scripture says. You wouldn't like to boast and say, every action I do, every word I speak, I'm conscious that it is the power of the risen Christ. Oh no. You're going about your spiritual life without that obvious manifesting. Well now you did it before you were saved. Oh you were going about in your unspiritual life, pleasing yourself and didn't know you were being used by another master spirit. Oh well that's good then. So we needn't get into a panic because we, we wouldn't like to say that every moment of our days we are conscious of the great power of God any more than we could, we would have at first believed that in our every ordinary, every ordinary decent day's life of an unbeliever there was someone who sometimes picked him up and put him on another part of the checkerboard. He didn't know. The two sides. And then he pinches up again and gives them another title. Not merely children of disobedience, but children of wrath. Children of wrath. Dreadful, isn't it? Once disobedience, once wrath. You see, that's like the scriptures. They're nearly always in pairs. As sure as you've got sin on one side of the world, you turn it over, you've got its punishment on the other. You remember that? Gives you that alternative rendering in Genesis 4 when Cain says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Or the margin says, my sin is greater than can be forgiven. It's all the same. It's all the same. Which way you look at it? Punishment or sin. Bear or forgiven. There's no forgiveness of sins without somebody bore them. And nobody can commit a sin without punishment being waiting for it. It's a part of it. And so, they are children of disobedience. They're necessarily then children of wrath. But of course, disobedience is antagonistic to the mind and will of God. Cannot please it. And then there are two, three other little words. Even as others. Now I've met some who have been so infused with the glorious acceptance of the believer in Christ that they actually said in a public meeting that members of the body of Christ didn't even need redemption. Because they were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy. And I said, yes, but you weren't holy after all, said none. And you were children of wrath, even as others. God didn't set his love upon any of us because we had tendencies towards being a little better than somebody else. Not a bit of it. We were just the same as the rest, externally. But his love saw something, I don't know what. His love moved, we do not know why. He tells in the Old Testament, God did not set his love upon you because you were better or greater in numbers than any other people, but God loved you because he loved you. Now that's what they call arguing in a circle. 
You tell God that. He says, that's the only way I can argue with you people. I can't say, I love you because of what? No. I love you because I love you. That's the end of it. I'm glad of that. Because that can never fail. But in my case, it might. Well now, here we have then this contrast to the mighty power that's wrought in the believer. The antagonistic mighty power that's out in the world. And dominating the lives of those who ultimately will come into a knowledge of salvation and be delivered. Well now let's look a little bit more at the remainder of this passage. We've got now the blessed words, but God. You know how many times the Apostle Paul uses that way? But now, a righteousness of God without the law is manifest. See, he goes all through the passage, how it's utterly impossible for anybody to be justified by any works of law, the whole world brought in guilty before God, and you think, oh dear, oh dear, but now, something else comes in. And that's the move of God. He's the only one who can break this. He does. So in this chapter 2, but God, or in verse 13, but now, oh, let's be grateful for breaking this awful sequence. God alone can do it. And you know that is the character of miracle. Breaking what is apparently a necessary connection. I was talking uh, yesterday morning at one of the meetings uh, to a young man who's recently been converted who cannot possibly understand how a miracle can be. And I used a very well-worn illustration. I said, well, supposing you were with your little child, if you had one, very near the edge of Beachy Head, of course, we ought not to be there, but supposing. And then suddenly, that little child got right to the edge. I said, now what would the law of gravity do if it went over? It would bring that little child down, smash to the rocks beneath. It would never stop and say, oh no, I won't act this time. This is a little child. No, down it would go. That's the law of nature. That will go on day and night till the end of time. But what would you do? Well, you put out your hand and you snatch that little child. I said, that's a miracle. Because you've upset the law of nature. But you've done it because you're a person. Persons all day long are cutting across the law of nature and making them serve their turn instead. The law of nature makes water run down and they say, well, I want it to go up and up it goes. You see? Well, the moment you believe that God is a person, then a miracle is as easy as Snatching the little child from what would otherwise be certain death. Well, here we are. We are pleasing ourselves and we're being used by a master spirit and we don't know it and we're children of disobedience and sons of wrath. Oh, what are we going to do? What can we do? This is going on. And then God, the God of miracles, says, well, I'm going to stop it. Oh, let's be glad there are miracles. So when Paul wrote Romans 1, he used the word miracle in 1.16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the miracle of God unto salvation to everyone who believe it. Not any power. That's the word translated miracle in the gospel of Matthew. So sometimes we say miracles don't happen today, or not evidential miracles as they did in the early church. But if that miracle doesn't happen, not one of us would have been saved. Well now, here's the miracle then. But God, have you forgotten me, he says. 
Oh, I'm above principality and power, I'm above the prince of this world, and I'm above all your weakness and failure and sin, but God. Well, what about this God? Who is rich in mercy. Mercy. Mercy is a very wonderful word. It doesn't look for anything in the person except that they're in abject need. Mercy. It doesn't question whether you're worthy of it or not. Mercy doesn't look for that. But God who is rich in mercy. But his great love. Oh, it's piling on now, friends. Mercy. The mercy of God's enough. But for his great love. Wherewith he loved us. Even we, now they've got this all over again, even we, being dead ones, two sins, exactly the same words, have quickened us together with Christ. This is where he moves. He's quickened us. We died with Christ. We've died to our sins. What if I'm not leaving you there? I'm going to quicken you. Or I have done so. It's begun. Quite a number of God's people I've heard when they're going through the glorious steps with which the believer is associated with Christ's work. Perhaps you've done it too. Say this. They say, look, the scripture says we were crucified with him. We died with him. We are buried with him. We are raised with him. We are seated with him. And we're going to be manifested with him in glory. And then you say, you left one out, friend. Have I? Go over it again. All right. We are crucified with Christ. We died with him. We are buried with him. We are raised with him. See, they forget the one that's quickened with him. Quickened with him comes before being raised with him. That's the very point. You being now dead to your sins, you're quickened with him already in this life. Not merely waiting for glory. The outward man is finishing, the inward man is being renewed from day to day. It started. Romans 8 says, By his spirit that dwelleth in you, we shall quicken your mortal body. And if you don't believe that belongs to the present time, the Apostle Paul will say, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. What are you going to do with that? That's now, isn't it? So, we died with him, yes. We were buried with him, yes. But they're quickened with him. And then, the next move, we're raised. But that, the apostle doesn't go straight on, you notice. He says in verse 5, has quickened us together with Christ, by grace you're saved. Puts a bit in brackets. That's one of those little, little bits that did. It stops him for a minute, but it's like a person in a meeting who can't contain himself any longer, and he breaks out and says, Hallelujah! Well, we don't want that too many times, but occasionally you can't help it, can you? So he's put it in. He says, oh, the, he says, the saved are in for grace. By grace are you saved. But then he goes back again and goes up his next step. And has raised us up together. Oh, what a blessed word that is together, isn't it? With us all the time. Of course, that's the consolation with regard to personal things, quite apart from the doctrine. The Lord assures his people, I will be with you in trouble. He doesn't say you'll always be exempt from trouble, but he says, I'll be with you in it. And the earthly psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And Moses said, if thy presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. We can say that, can't we? You imagine us starting off on the journey to heavenly places, far above all principalities and power, all on our own. Well, that's a terrify you, isn't it? But it's with him. We go down into the depths with him, and then we start coming up with him, quickened with him. The life of Christ. Why the Apostle Paul again says, always bearing about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in my mortal flesh. Surely there's something happened there. Quicken with him. Quickening takes place some, some time before birth. And it's not the same as birth, but it's the beginning. It's the pledge. It means it's coming. And so everyone in this little meeting who has the slightest quickening in their life here, they've got the earnest and the pledge already starting that it's coming right out into the fullness of resurrection, glory, presently. And so he goes to the next step. And let's raise us up together. Romans 6 has told us that. And then, of course, there are some folks who say, well, if Romans 6 tells us, as it does, that we are crucified with him, and Romans 6 tells us that we died with him, and Romans 6 tells us that we are raised together with him, then what's your idea of telling us that Ephesians is such a distinctive thing? It's already in Romans 6. I say, yes, mate, but you haven't stopped. In Romans, you haven't gone far enough on me. In Romans 6, you stop at the word raised with him. But Ephesians puts one bit more on that's never mentioned anywhere else. And what is that one bit? Not only raised together with him, but made us sit together in heavenly places. Now that's never written in Romans. Romans gives you the great basis. And wait, that's the doctrinal basis. Now this comes and lifts you to your new sphere, which has now been revealed, wasn't revealed in Romans' time. Made us sit together. This word sit is well worth pondering, looking up the references. Occasionally it means just to sit because a person may be tired. But in the majority of cases, it means to sit in a place of recognised authority. Our Saviour said, the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, therefore you listen to what they say and let them put the burdens on you. Or I saw thrones and they sat upon them. Of course, to sit in authority. So that we have our word cathedral which is only a word for a chair. The bishop's seat. He speaks ex cathedra out of the chair. Authority. What did you think of the tabernacle service? And the very statement that the Apostle Paul makes in Hebrews. In Hebrews, he insists upon the fact that Christ is the seated priest. Seated, seated, seated. In, Rome, in the 8th chapter of that epistle to the Hebrews, he says, I'll stop for a minute, I'll sum up what I've said. This is the sum. We have a seated priest in a heavenly sanctuary. Then presently he comes back to the subject in the 10th chapter, and he says, the priests of Levi, the priests of Israel, they went on day by day offering the same sacrifices, which never took away sins, but he, he says one word, they stood daily doing it. And then he says, but this man, that's Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. 
Christ is the only priest that ever sat down in connection with his work. And a seated priest is a finished work recognized as such. Look where we are then, friends. We are raised with him. That's wonderful enough. We are seated with him. That's the end of the journey. That's our complete acceptance. Only, of course, this is potentially, we're not there yet. But we have it in our very heart, as it were. And so we're getting once more to that most marvellous definition of the believer's faith. I say the believer's faith. It's not the definition of a seeker who needs salvation, but a person who is already a believer. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. And that's this, isn't it? I'm hoping one day that God will fulfill his promise and I shall be there in heavenly places where Christ is at the right hand of God. What if that's my faith? I'm there now potentially. I feel now the future on the instant, as Shakespeare puts it. And this very word in Hebrews 11, faith is the substance of things hoped for, as I think I mentioned before, but it will do a repetition, is discovered in the papyrus, which we've now got heaps of to get check on the words of the scripture. It was used in the apostles' own day as the title deeds to a property. Faith is the title deeds of something which is waiting for you in the glory. So we're already anticipating it. We're seated with Christ, potentially. Then, of course, we wake up with an awful bump, because we're still down here, but it's good sometimes to let your thoughts run on and realise what you are in the purpose of God and what you will be in reality when that day comes. Well, what about the character of that day? Just one word more on verse 7. This is all in preparation for the ages to come. The ages to come. And what will he do? And what will he be like in the ages to come? That he might show. <coughs> There's going to be an exhibition in that day. And we are going to be the exhibits, friends. I don't know what sort of exhibition it's going to be, but there's going to be some wonders up there. Principalities and powers are going to look at you and me, knowing who we are and what we are, and realise the marvel of redeeming love that puts us there like that. Spotless. Blameless. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. And then in case you're going to be overwhelmed by it, he puts in his kindness. And it's the last word. How wonderful. The last word of definition of glory in this section is not magnificence, not majesty, but kindness. You're going home, friends, ultimately. You're going to be received in a father's house. He'll bring forth the best robe and put it on you and a ring on your feet and they'll make merry in glory. And it'll be kindness in a father's home. Not merely magnificence in a most glorious temple. And then it's all after after all through Christ Jesus. All the blessings that are here enumerated and anywhere else are either in Christ or through him. And we wouldn't have it otherwise, would we? Well that's as far as we can go this evening. In this study, we pick up our study God willing next time and continue with the exposition of the words that he slipped in brackets
by grace are you saved. 